Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Warfare. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this week is Holocaust Memorial Day. So it is a pleasure to welcome Agnes Grunwald Spear back onto the podcast. Agnes is a survivor of the Holocaust, who was born in Budapest in July 1944. She and her mother were sent to the ghetto there in November 44 and were liberated in January 45. In this episode, Agnes tells us about her personal family experience of living in the ghetto. But she also brings us truly remarkable stories from her own research on the other Schindlers. Those thousands of non-Jewish people who risked their lives to save Jews from the Holocaust. Please also check out our other episodes on Hitler's North African genocide, Nazi death marches, and our episode on persecuted under the Nazis, Black and Roma peoples. Please also note that Agnes and her mother were witnesses and subject to some horrific actions, so please bear in mind that this episode contains distressing stories. But now, here is Agnes Grunwald-Spear on The Other Schindlers. Hi, Agnes. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and I'm very pleased to be invited back. You were on the podcast when we first began talking about your personal history and your experience with your mother in the Budapest ghetto. And it's great to have you back on again to talk about some of the excellent, amazing research you've done into that period of history, into the Holocaust, especially as we come up to Holocaust Memorial Day and week. So perhaps we can actually start there, start back with your personal history. Tell us about how your life links into that period that we call the Holocaust. Well, I was born in Budapest in July 1944 to a Hungarian Jewish couple. My mother was Leona Grunwald and my father was Philip Grunwald. And my father was taken away as a forced labourer in 1943 by the Hungarians. That's very important because the Hungarians had their own anti-Jewish legislation long before the Germans actually arrived in Hungary in March 1944. He had a truly awful time and although he survived, he was very bitter and he wouldn't have any more children after the war, so I don't have any siblings. He said it wasn't a world to bring children into. And when I was 10 in 1955, he committed suicide. My mother, she had me in July 1944, as I said, which was not a good time. We were very nearly deported somewhere after my birth. 
between July and November. And I had always assumed that this was to Auschwitz, but I discovered relatively recently that the trains to Auschwitz from Hungary actually stopped round about early July. So we wouldn't have been going there. But anyhow, my mother didn't tell me much about it, but she just said, um, that she turned up on the the day she was given the date she was given, and she just said the man in charge sent back the women with children, and that's all she said. So she went back to the place where she'd been staying, which was Star of David House. So it was a place allocated to Jewish women, although it wasn't yet the ghetto. And then in November. Um, we were sent to the ghetto and we were there until it was liberated in January. The Budapest ghetto was only in existence a very short time compared with somewhere like the Warsaw ghetto, which existed for several years. But even so, it wasn't a pleasant place to be. There was very little food and there was virtually no fuel, I think, apart from burning furniture. And also the Arrow Cross, the Hungarian fascists, like to take pot shots at the Jews in the ghetto. So we were very lucky to survive, and my mother was able to breastfeed me, even though she didn't get much food herself. So, um, again, I mean, I was six months old when we were liberated, so I was very lucky to survive those awful conditions. One thing I've, I've always wanted to ask you, Agnes, when we've spoken about this, is is how was the ghetto set up? So was this kind of fenced off with a guarded way in, way out? Do you say about pot shots? Were there towers put up? Put there was up? a wall. There, there was, was a, wall. a wall. If you go, you can see where the wall was. And there were gates, so you couldn't come and go as you wished. I mean, people could go in if they were minded. You know, people had got work to do and so on. But in all the countries, in all the cities where they built ghettos, they you know, built a great big brick wall across. So it's very difficult to escape. And did your mum explain to you much about what it was like living in the ghetto at that time? Or indeed, what liberation was like? Did it feel like a liberation? Well, she didn't talk about it much. And I didn't ask her because I knew that she sometimes had bad dreams and of course now I regret that, particularly as I'm trying to write a family memoir. And one of the things, obviously, that I want to focus on is the Budapest ghetto. And I've been trying to find out, you know, what actually happened. But it seems as though they just sort of opened the gates. My mother's cousin, who was with Tito, and he was in Budapest at the Liberation, which is mainly down to the Russians, I should say, said he found my mother sitting on some steps, holding me, surrounded by dead bodies. But she had a flat that she'd lived in with my father, but which she'd had to leave sometime in June 1944. And this was, she was liberated mid-January 1945, and she went back to the flat. And I don't know whether somebody else had been living in it or what, but anyhow, she was in it. And... The Russian soldiers, sort of first the good news and then the bad news, they liberated Budapest, but then they were marauding round. Well, they didn't have the best reputation, did they, Agnes? No. I think Anthony Bivois has written about what happened in Berlin. I'm not sure that anybody's particularly written about what happened in Budapest, but my mother told me, and she was only little, she was much smaller than me, but she had 
great authority and incredibly fierce look. And she said that she found three Russian soldiers in our flat. I can't imagine that they knocked on the door, but whether they kicked the door in or what, I don't know anyhow they were there. She didn't speak Russian, they didn't speak Hungarian. And she told me they indicated that they wanted food. And she equally indicated that she didn't have any. So they went off and they came back with this frozen animal. She told me she thought it was a dog. And somehow they hacked it up and she cooked it. And my mother was a very fine cook. And she didn't have the opportunity to show it off on that occasion. And they all sat and ate it. And of course, she ate it as well, because when you've got no food, you're not so picky. And there was absolute mayhem going on around her. And the block, you know, was a square with a courtyard in the middle. And other soldiers were chucking porcelain and linen. She could see stuff flying through the window. She could hear screams from women who were being raped. And my little mum just decided to fed this cooked dog to these three soldiers. She was obviously worried that they might hurt me. She saw one looking at me, but he just sort of bashed his chest and held up three fingers to show that he'd got three children. And, you know, once they got full tummies, they just lay down on the floor and went to sleep. And the next morning, they just woke up and went. And there was absolutely no damage or no aggravation at all. So, you know, we were lucky. And then my father came wandering back. I've been trying to find out about that as well, because he came back in March 1945, and he'd been on the Russian front, I believe. Not an easy journey back, I can imagine. Well, yes, and I don't suppose, you know, coaches were laid on or anything. And, of course, with him dying when I was so young, he told, you know, I hardly know anything. So, Do you know what he did on the Eastern Front? Well... I found a form that my mother had filled in many years ago. She died in 1991. I think she was trying to make some sort of reparation claim, but she never sent it off. I don't know for what reason. She said that the forced labourers were meant to be looking for mines. And a friend of mine who's Hungarian, whose father was in a similar situation, said basically they just make them walk over the fields. And obviously, if they'd trod on a mine, they'd found it. But, I mean, he was the most impractical man I know, apart from the one that I'm married. And <laughs> he survived. is quite remarkable. Perhaps there weren't many mines, or perhaps he learned to be careful. I don't know. But surely a, a harrowing time that sadly tormented and stuck with him. Well, yes. And the thing that was so awful, you see, was that the, the Jews weren't allowed to be in the Hungarian army. Uh, but they were being looked after, um, using the term loosely, by their Hungarian fellow countrymen, you know, the soldiers who treated them appallingly. It's often a bit that we forget about the Holocaust, isn't it? I mean, you can talk about the Nazi party and the kind of core policies that come from Hitler, but it's all of those that facilitate this around the world, really, that are complicit in this, from the Eastern Front through to North Africa as well, not just the Nazi party. Well, that's right. And um, funnily enough, there was something on Twitter yesterday about somebody saying that her grandma, who was Polish and was in the Holocaust, said the Poles were worse than the Germans. And my mother always said the Hungarians were worse than the Germans. And in France, the Germans were shocked at the enthusiasm of some of the French people. 
And it was they that insisted that families shouldn't be broken up and they sent the children with their parents, whereas the Germans would have left the children in France. And it is very much a myth, isn't it, that everyone was in the French resistance. I mean, France after the Second World War was very much a, a fragmented country that was reunited under de Gaulle by that myth that everyone was in the resistance. Well, yes, and of course there's all the controversy in Poland at the moment. I heard uh, Jan Grabowski, I think his name is, speak. It was actually in the Museum of London, but it was organised by the Wiener Library about the current situation there with the legislation and the government. And I've seen that the Hungarian government, not surprisingly under Orban, is following suit. Revisionism is alive and well in Eastern Europe. Well, this is why the research by people like your good self is so important. Now, first of all, you mentioned Twitter. And of course, we have to plug that everyone should follow you on Twitter at Grumwald Spear. And now we've got that one out of the way. We'll move through to your important research. Now, Oskar Schindler, of course, was a German industrialist and a member of the Nazi party who is credited with saving around one and a half thousand Jewish lives during the Holocaust by employing them at his enamelware and munitions factories in occupied Poland. And the focus of your work is the other Schindlers, the inspiring stories of courageous non-Jews who risked their own lives to save Jews from the Holocaust. So take us through some of these key figures, Agnes. Where should we start? It's interesting, actually, having mentioned Twitter. Last week, um, I found another story on Twitter. This is the remarkable thing. I mean, where are we? I was born in 44, which was the last year of the war, and I'm 77. So 76 years after the end of the Holocaust, these stories are still emerging. And this is a chap He's called the Irish Schindler. His name was Marcus Whitsum, and he'd come from Poland to Ireland, and he had a hat-making business and sort of haberdashery in general. He arranged for someone to come from Paris and set up a hat factory in Ireland, and then they were able quite legally to bring lots of Jews over to work in the factory. And the bit that is best in this story is that the Bishop of Galway, which has told about this factory and all these Jews working there, and he told his lady parishioners that they must wear hats in future to come to church, not just headscarves. And I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. So I tossed that in because I came across it last week and I thought it would be interesting to show that these stories are still coming out of the woodwork. I should go back a bit because I did an MA in Holocaust studies late in life in my 50s. I did that at Sheffield University when I was living in Sheffield because I felt I was fairly ignorant about the Holocaust apart from what my mother had told me. And I, then I had three teenagers and I felt if they asked me, I couldn't really answer it. So I did the MA and to get the degree, I had to write a dissertation. And I wrote a dissertation about a man called Varian Fry. I'd seen a programme on the television about him. And he'd gone to Marseille for this organisation which had been set up by Thomas Mann and other uh, intellectuals in America to rescue the Jews that were stuck in Marseille after the fall of France in 1940. 
And what's interesting is it was called the Emergency Rescue Committee, and it actually morphed into the International Rescue Committee, which Ed Miliband, not Ed Miliband, David David, Miliband, David Miliband runs that today. Yes, Bavarian yeah. Cry did it for free. And I think David Miliband gets about a million pounds a year, but that's by the by. So I wrote about Varian Fry, and that was how I became interested in rescuers, because doing the research, I mean, it's obvious, really, but I realised what a dangerous thing it was to do, because, as you said, not only did you risk your own life, but you certainly risked your life of your family. And again, particularly in Poland, I mean, in some cases, you know, whole villages were killed if the Jew was found being hidden. So it was a dangerous thing to do. And I was, I was particularly interested in the motivation, you know, why people would do that. Because if you think about it, and for people they didn't know, it's one thing to rescue someone that you've known for a long time. And so when I did the research, I actually only wrote about people where I'd had personal contact with the family, either of the rescuer or the rescued. So I could ask direct questions and so get that um, very close connection with the truth rather than speculating on what the motivation was. And I ended up with four answers, really, which I've written down. Some people said they did it because they had religious motives and other people said humanitarian motives. The third group said they saw it as being part of the resistance. They saw rescuing you know, part of the role. And then others did it out of loyalty. One woman, Mitzi, offered to hide her employers. She'd been their cook for several years. And although she's a single woman and only had a tiny flat, she did offer to hide them, which was an enormous thing. In the end, they didn't go because um, the mother was quite sick and it wouldn't really have worked out. And the other ones, which are very interesting, were near Danzig. The Jewish woman and her brother had lent this family some money when they had a bad time and their cattle were dying and so on. And as a result, they offered to hide her and she hid in their loft for over two years, never coming out of the room. And it had a metal roof, and in the summer it was boiling, and in the winter it was freezing. But the really remarkable thing about this family was that they ran a boarding house, not a boarding house, a boarding house. And in the time, she was called Elsie, and... In the time that Elsie was living in the loft, uh, or the attic, really, they sometimes had Nazi officers living in the house. And she wrote a very long letter to her brother after the war explaining. And, for instance, one of the things that people being hidden used to do was in those days, you know, everybody had metal buckets, and they had a metal bucket if they were hiding and this might be useful information to anybody listening. If you have a metal bucket and you put a towel over the metal bucket, then you can wee into it. And there's hardly any noise as the liquid goes into the bucket. That is ingenious. I mean, it is a good bit of advice. 
It's a good bit of advice. The other bit of advice, which I always tell people, is that if you live in a block of flats, make sure you keep a good relationship with the caretaker, the concierge, because in troubled times, they have enormous power. They could protect you or they could betray you. And I've got examples of both, you know, where the concierge saw the Nazis coming and they kept them chatting so that people could escape, you know, round the back. On the other hand, you know, they also, you know, for a small sum, they could betray people. So always keep a good relationship with the concierge where you live. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. I've got a brand new podcast where we discuss all things green, from nature to recycling to foraging to potty training cows. Yeah, I'm not joking. Apparently, it helps with pollution. Each week, you'll be hearing from some recognisable faces off the telly and eco-experts who will tell us how they try and sometimes fail to live a greener life. People like the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith. It is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvellous things in some areas because received wisdom will sometimes you'll talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before ecopreneur ashita cabri davis on why renting our clothes might be the future you know you might feel great about yourself because you did a wardrobe clear out and you donated things to charity shops but 90 percent of those donations are completely worthless and they're sent to landfills in asian and african countries and my old pal jamie oliver on how to eat in season i think i was stupid enough naive enough and unspoilt enough about the world that we live in. Tune into On Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
you talk about the motivations and do you feel like a lot of the time it was down to kind of personal relationships of whether or not some people lived or died? Well, the thing was, a lot of them were, a lot of people rescued people they didn't know. That's the thing. Obviously, the ones with the loyalty, which I think there were only two, they obviously knew the people. But most of the others, there wasn't a relationship beforehand. And people were accosted by the resistance and asked, you know, if they would hide a child or, or if they would help. And I mean, they must have chosen the people very carefully. And the way it was organised, actually, was quite remarkable that in Holland had very well organised resistance. And I wrote about um, one little girl who was hidden, uh, Susie. And in fact, I went to America when the book was launched and I met her daughter, lives in Rhode Island. And the children were moved every six months for security. But also, and this is the important thing, because I've, I've done work in regulating social workers, they called unexpectedly to see what sort of condition the children were in and that they were well cared for and so on. And I think, well, if they could do that in those terrible times, surely we can do better than we seem to be doing at the moment. That is amazing. I've never thought about the kind of, well, I suppose, you know, I ask whether or not it's down to personal relationships, but to to look after lots of children and to actually get people out of a country, you need a bigger network of people. And that's where the resistance comes in. But the idea that they were even down to the, the social care element, the welfare of children and, and checking on them. I mean, it, it is an amazing feat, isn't it? Even if you read about evacuees in this country, a lot of them were badly treated and treated as servants. I mean, Jack Rosenthal wrote about him and his brother's experiences. And, you know, the people that they went to were awful to them. And yet other people, I met a man who came over on the kinder transport and came with his cousin and he was, I think he was with Methodists. I mean, they were devout people, but they arranged for a rabbi to come every Sunday to teach the boys so they wouldn't forget their faith. So, I mean, we've gone off the point because I'm talking about evacuees, but it's all about keeping the children safe in loco parentis, really. And what I found interesting about these motives were, as I said, they were religious motives, humanitarian resistance. Loyalty doesn't come into this really, but in fact, there were a lot of religious people who didn't hide anybody or rescue anybody. There were a lot of people who would call themselves humanitarians who didn't. And there were people in the same family. There was a sister, a woman and her sister, and uh, the woman, she was a young girl, she was about 18 or 19, gave a Jewish woman her papers and then went to the office and said that she'd been on a boat and that her papers fell in the water and could she have another set. And when she told her sister what she'd done, the sister went ballistic and said, you know, you've endangered us all. So it wasn't a question even of how you were brought up which was something that the early sociologists tried to suggest because different people in the same family reacted in a different way. And I just, my conclusion was that the people who acted 
as rescuers were just very special people who had that something inside that made them feel this is what they had to do. And of course, you opened with Schindler, but in fact, he is the arch conundrum, really, because all his life, he was an absolute bastard. He was terrible to his wife. He was a drunkard. And goodness knows what. He was a member of the Nazi party. But just at that one point in his life, he knew what was the right thing to do. And he did it. And after the war, he was a bastard. He lived off the people he'd rescued. He was still terrible to his wife. And he was a drunkard and so on. And that was the other thing that I found really interesting in the book. There were people like Schindler. And Varian Fry, really, was another one. They were a relatively unremarkable man. But again, they needed someone to go to France uh, with these visas, which the story goes, Eleanor Roosevelt got her husband to sign 200 visas for the Jewish intellectuals stuck in the south of France. And he said he'd go if no one else would go. And that, you know, was probably the most important thing in his life. But there were other people who all their lives helped people. And I think that's quite interesting as well, that, you know, somehow some people have, is it an epiphany or the road to Damascus or whatever, you know, they think, I must do this. The couple that um, saved Susie, he was a railway man. And all his life he helped people. People were always turning up at the door, wanting jobs, and he always give people some food. And he was just that sort of bloke. And again, I think that's extremely interesting that you know, the way people respond. But of course, although Yad Vashem has, it was about 22,000 when I wrote my book. So it is more people have been recognized as righteous amongst the nations. And I did read somewhere what the figure was of the bystanders, because, you know, in this subject, we talk about the rescuers and the rescued and the bystanders. And of course, the majority of people in uh, occupied Europe were bystanders for, you know, very reasonable reasons, protecting themselves, their families, their children. You're right. I would have always thought that a single type of quite caring person who perhaps had been charitable and or worked with the Jewish communities in the past that had been the key people that helped save the Jews during the Holocaust. But the idea that you could be a bastard, have an epiphany, and then be a bastard again. There's something quite warming about that. Not for me personally, I wouldn't describe myself as a bastard. But, you know, in general, I think that the idea that you can have these people that reach the right conclusion at that dark moment in time kind of gives us all a little bit of hope. Yes. I mean, people often ask me whether I've got a favourite. Yeah, and I can't say that I have, because each story has its own particular delights. But there is, it's partly his name, actually, this remarkable man. And also, he was a Lithuanian, and the Lithuanians didn't have a very good record in the Holocaust. His name was Vitatus Rinkivikius. And he was the foreman in a factory, and he had three people in his factory. He created a kind of false ceiling, and there's husband and wife. And in fact, the man was the chap who was a great friend of Harold Wilson, and I can't now remember his name, but 
his wife was called Margaret, and he was the one who made the Max that Harold Wilson made famous, if you remember, perhaps you're too young. Anyhow, he hit the man and his mother, and the woman who was his fiancée, but Margaret, I knew her quite well, and he used to go and see them twice a day, used to take them food and obviously to empty their bucket and so on. And after a little while, his wife accused him of having an affair because he was never at home. He was always distracted and food was disappearing and obviously food disappearing in those times perhaps was the most important. So in the end, he had to tell her what he was doing. And she was very angry because they had two young daughters. She said to him, you know, you're endangering our daughters' lives. But in the end, she did come on board. And as we know, the mother and Margaret and husband, whose name I cannot remember, survived and came to England, got married, and were able to lead a normal life, even being friends with Harold Wilson. And they're both recognised as writers amongst the nations. Each story is incredible because it unearths a different way in which people were saved, a different motive behind them, and sometimes kind of those personal relationships that made it incredibly risky, incredibly difficult. I mean, you can imagine coming home to your wife who's worried that there's food going missing and you're distracted, and then she finds out that you're putting your kids at risk. I mean, it's one of those moments where... It's a test in a marriage, in a relationship, isn't it? And fortunately, in that case, it, it sounds like they uh, they picked the right person to marry. The one story which I have to tell you, because apart from anything else, his widow is still alive and lives in London, and that's um, the story of Charles Fawcett, who was an American from the Deep South, and he went to Paris to go to art school, and then, of course, with the fall of France, he ended up in the south of France. He's one of those people. All his life he helped people. He only died a few years ago and he was he was all over the place and he, he had the most remarkable life. But anyhow, he to the best of my knowledge, his method of rescue is quite unique because again, through the resistance, he was asked if he would marry some Jewish women, because being an American, as soon as he married them, they acquired American nationality and they had to be released. And he actually married six Jewish women. And even at the end of his life, he had the most amazing twinkle in his eye. And he told me, he said, only one of those marriages was consummated. (laughs) He said to me, a lot of people say they're glad that Hitler didn't have the atomic bomb. He said, I'm very glad he didn't have a computer because if he'd had a computer, he would have known I was married to six women at the same time. You know, that again is an amazing story. But what people did and what people went through, I always think of Elsie in her attic uh, for two and a half years. It's something like that and not going out, no fresh air. And she wrote that when she was finally able to go out, she couldn't wear shoes because the soles of her feet were so soft from not having walked anywhere or that it was painful. And the ironical thing is that after the war, the Stenzels, who were the people who hid her, you know, there was all sorts of repercussions after the war, and they were taken to court because they'd had Nazi officers staying in the house and they were accused of being collaborators and all sorts. And she went to court and defended them and said, look, they hid me. 
all that time. They weren't collaborators, they were good people. So, I mean, you know, it was just shambolic after the war. It was, yes. That aftermath, I think, still has a lot of research to be done on it and a lot to unpack there as well. Agnes, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us all of these different stories. And I know that you've got 30 of them packed into your book. So tell us, where can we read more about the other Schindlers? Well, the books are available from all good bookshops and all over the world. And please do read the stories because these remarkable people deserve to be remembered and honoured. But don't think they're the only ones I was showing the book to somebody and this woman said to me, she said, oh, I didn't realise anybody other than Schindler rescued Jews. And, you know, as I say, the stories are still coming out and people are still being recognised as righteous amongst the nation, although not so many because obviously people involved are dead and one of the criteria is you have to risk your life and there was no payment. But I'm writing, trying to write a family memoir and there are two other books as well. So if people go onto Amazon or into their bookshop with my name, they can find the other two books as well. Absolutely. And we'll get you back on the podcast to talk about those stories another time, most definitely. The other two books are The Women's Experience in the Holocaust and Who Betrayed the Jews. But for this one, check out The Other Schindlers, Why Some People Chose to Save the Jews in the Holocaust by Agnes Grimroll-Spear with a foreword by Sir Martin Gilbert. And as I said before, go and follow Agnes on Twitter, at Grumwald Spear. I have a website as well. And you have a website, which is... agnesgrunwaldspear.com www.agnesgrunwaldspear.com Perfect. So many ways to get in contact with you. Agnes, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, James, for asking me. I've enjoyed it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland. 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.